The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. My name is Paul Lim. For those of you who don't know me, I serve here as a scholar in residence. And um, it's always a great, great delight to open the Word of God. Um, This morning, I preached here earlier, and then I went to in-town and then came back. And on the way back, there were two cars that were in front of me. They were driving about 35 miles an hour. I was like, I got to get back to church. Where are they going? Where are they going? <laughs> Guess where they're coming to? Christ. <laughs> For those drivers in the two cars in front of me, forgive me in the Lord. <laughs> and the person behind me was tailgating me like there's no tomorrow. I forgive you in the Lord. He also came to, he also came to Christ's prayers. So. Four-car caravans. I'm ready to worship God and open up the word of the Lord. So today is Father's Day. As fathers, we try our best to instill in our children a sense of belonging, security, happiness, and also confidence. The word they will think about a lot, Christ, uh, our confidence. But Father's Day, not too dissimilar to Mother's Day, could also be a difficult day, a hard day. So I want to remember those of us among us today who, for whom Father's Day may be a bittersweet day, as it is also for me as well. So let's pray. Gracious God, we come to you knowing that you know us all, already even before one word is uttered, one thought is conceived of in our hearts. God, we come to you knowing that you will embrace us. You have already done so in Jesus Christ that you will remind us through the reading and proclaiming and listening and doing of the word that our confidence ought to be found in you 
and you alone. Amen. Christian conversion, according to the Apostle Paul in today's text, brings about a major revaluation of our currency and confidence. I think it's pretty important for us to think about that because Paul goes through a conversion experience and that causes him to have a major revaluation, re-evaluating of his currency. If you're in the financial service, you know what I'm talking about. There's kind of revaluating a company or a particular currency and thus our sense of confidence. So let me ask all of us this question. What or who gives us the sense of confidence? Many of us, both in the world and also, unfortunately, in the church as well, tend to seek it from our zip codes, where we live, pedigrees, what schools we went to or are going to or where we work, assets, how much our net worth may be or may not be, net worth, with whom we hang out, play, name drop, and not as often from our relationship with Christ. That's certainly true of me, and I suspect that may be true of some others of us here as well. Remembering that this letter of Philippians was written to a fledgling church community, which was experiencing a couple of opposite realities. First, it was reeling from the joy of discovering their identities in Christ Jesus, the perfect God-man in whose death and resurrection these new Christians were catechized into and, engra and engrafted through baptism and the Eucharist and the Word. Second, quite conversely, it was also trying to figure out what it meant for them to be Christians within the cultural, moral, and social mores of the mighty Roman Empire. I mean, the way of the empire was always right. The Roman Senate, the Roman emperors, they built aqueducts, they built highways, they built a lot of these things, and they gave the citizens the law, and they created this most perfect system, so they thought, and the empire that will never go away. Thus, the Romans are to put their trust and confidence in the law, order, and peace that the empire was bequeathing to its citizens, and Philippi was part of the Roman Empire. Into this city, the gospel came, and to this city and its believers, this St. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing. So in this section of the letter, as was read to us earlier, Paul uses a very poignant autobiographical snapshot to lovingly teach his beloved friends of all, what it means to truly live under a different grammar of faith. So a couple of words that we'll use a lot during our sermon today is confidence and also grammar. I don't have much confidence in my grammar, but you get what I mean. Put differently, the church's grammar was to be constructed with Christ as a chief cornerstone as well as the chief teacher, as the alpha and the omega. Thus, its confidence was to be found in Jesus alone. As this group of young Christians were learning about God, and therefore self, they're being challenged and encouraged to think about what it means for them to be learning a new grammar. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Because as I, this is the thesis statement of the talk today, is, is without that increasing sense of confidence in Christ alone, the church, whether it is in Philippi or Nashville or wherever else, 
would be nothing more than a thinly veiled sham for a religious country club where human boasting, human self-sufficiency, and will to power in all of its most advanced and beautified form of covering was the driving engine. We could be building towers of Babel in churches. So it does behoove us to ask this slightly uncomfortable and yet absolutely crucial question. Who or what is my fundamental and ultimate confidence? Let me start this sermon with three stories, three vignettes, and then we'll get to today's text, Philippians 3, 1 through 11, in a verse-by-verse exposition. I tend to have three points in my sermons. Today, I don't know if there is a point. I mean, I think there's one point. We'll just get through it one at a time. The first story is from about 1998, during which a friend from New York City visited us while Mickey, my wife, and I were living in England, where I was a grad student. And the second story comes from uh, the movie. Some of you have seen this movie, The Greatest Showman, right? And we'll actually watch the video of the song called This Is Me, a part of it. And the third one is from Scripture, 1 Samuel 22, 1 and 2. So in 1998, as my wife and I were settling in England, we had a visitor from New York City. I was really good friends, and I still remain really great friends with her uh, brother, Henry. And so this uh, friend came and visited us, and she was born in New York, went to college in New York, working in New York, was attending this very prominent evangelical church in New York City. And she said, you know, it's a group of, it's it's a really fastly growing church, People are usually in their 20s, 30s, 40s. If you're, 50 and, if you're 50, you're really old and that kind of church. And she said, you know, in this church, we tend to ask three questions. And she said, you know, increasingly, I'm not sure that this is my church. In fact, I'm pretty sure that Christianity is, is not my gig anymore because of this experience. So she continued to narrate for us what her experience is. She said, you know, when I go to this church, they ask me three questions, among others, three fundamental questions. One, Where do you work? Two, where'd you go to school? Three, where do you live? Now, those are, I think, innocuous questions. When you meet somebody, what do you do? Or like, where do you live? And these are, you know, but they they could be put to uh, someone who may feel like those questions are unsettling questions for me. And as she went on to say that, what if you don't have any of these three currencies? What if I didn't, I don't have the right job? What if I didn't go to the right school? What if I don't live in the right place? What if I don't have any of these things? And time and again, I get pummeled by my not belonging to this group, so I'm ready to get out of there. I'm, great. I'm glad to report to you that she does go to church. She is a Christian still, but that experience for me made me realize what kind of club or culture or community are we? Who do we welcome into our midst? Really welcome them. Share meals with them, share life with them, and so on and so forth. And the second story comes from this movie, The Greatest Showman, about P.T. Barnum, about the circus he created. I got to watch it in my sister's house. My sister and I are real good friends. I don't get to see her a lot, but every time I go, we just binge movies together. And we saw this Greatest Showman, and she's a pretty big Hugh Jackman fan, and she said, you got to watch this. And she was basically, if you have seen, how many of you have seen the movie? Some of you probably are dancing your way through, you know what I mean? Great songs. And so when I watched this song or listened to this song for the first time, 
I, I was doing two things. I was crying and I was dancing, if you can imagine that. So let's watch this video and you'll know what I mean. But this is a group of people who felt they were rejected by society, that they had no place to go, they didn't belong anywhere, and yet, under the leadership of P.T. Barnum, they come to form this circus. And so let's watch this and we'll talk in just a minute. Hide away, they say, because we don't want your broken parts. Run away, they say, no one will love you as you are. I've learned to be ashamed of all my scars. I know that there's a place for us, for we are glorious. I am brave, I am bruised, I am who I'm meant to be. This is me. When I heard that song for the first time and played it about 50 times ever since, I said, this has to be the anthem for the Christian church Amen. that we want to embrace, we want to include, we want to say, you belong here. And we feel the distance. We see the ideal of the gospel, and we see where we are, and yet we're not forsaken. The Holy Spirit is continually at work in our communities, reminding us of whose we are, challenging us to see the boundaries and say, go beyond where you are right now. The third story comes from 1 Samuel chapter 22. Beautiful story, not as well known. 1 Samuel chapter 22. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam, where his brothers and his father's household heard about it. They went down to David there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around David, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. Obscure story, but when I was in seminary, my Old Testament professor said, you know what, gentlemen and ladies, think of this story. Remember this story as a story of the church. Because people who are down and out and rejected by society, they were in debt, they were distressed, they were discontented. They all rallied to David at this cave, hiding out. And this becomes the type of the church. Is the church a place where all the unwanted and undesirable and untouchables can come without feeling like second class and find embrace and inclusion. This is an important moment for us to think about it because as Paul unpacks his message to the Philippian church, 
what he's basically saying is, unless we put our increasing and ultimate confidence in Christ and Christ alone, we will be like a holy huddle. They wouldn't know what to do with whatever the world may present to us. And this is a very important challenge of the gospel to us, both within ourselves and without outside of our world as well. Not all Judaism was the target of Paul's withering criticism that he has here. He says, watch out for the dogs and mutilators of the flesh and so on and so forth, strong language. What is he doing here? It seems that a good deal of Jewish practice and observance might have been more legally oriented, though not all at all, rather than focus on chesed or the Jewish theology of God's grace. Paul is saying that even amid our best efforts to please God, we could establish a system that is safeguarding against the very thing we need. We could be so religiously busy that we forget that we need grace every living moment of our life. God's forgiveness and restoration of our relationship with God is first and foremost and the last based upon God's grace. Paul seems rather really insistent on showing that such confidence, confidence on your accomplishments, confidence of your flesh, is actually antithetical to the gospel according to Jesus, which is achievable only by grace through faith and never by works. We see that in verse 9. So Paul says in verse uh, 4, says, if anyone thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. So the whole language of confidence or sufficiency, the currency that you're going to use as this is me, this is who I am. And Paul says, you know, if you think that you've got reasons to put confidence on your accomplishments and on your flesh, I've got more. And let me tell you, and he tells the readers seven things about which he used to be extremely proud of and confident in. First, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. What's the big deal about that, you might ask? That he was circumcised in the proper manner and of the rightly appointed day according to the law of Moses. What he's trying to do is show his pedigree and his purity in this seven kind of uh, items that he lists here. That he was a person, he was a member of the people of Israel. What does that mean? That he was not either a juvenile or adult convert to Judaism, but that he was born a Jew. That this is part of his blood right. Number three, then he says that he was part of the tribe of Benjamin. Not that this tribe among the 12 was more important or influential, although the first king of Israel, Saul, came from this tribe of Benjamin. Fourthly, he says that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. What does that mean? Many of the Jews around this time period had experienced this kind of diaspora, which means that a lot of people were not living in Israel. They were living all over the place, and he was living in North Africa in Tarsus, and yet he was nurtured in a Jewish family where he was taught to speak Hebrew, and so he was probably bilingual or trilingual. He probably spoke Koine Greek, and he knew other languages. So, and furthermore, he says, you know what? Regarding the law, I was a Pharisee. That means he took his religious observances with absolute seriousness, so much so that he studied under one of the best teachers named Gamaliel. And sixthly, he says, regarding the zeal, he was so excited about his Jewish identity and, and his relationship with Yahweh that he believed that persecuting Christians was actually doing God a favor. He was a zealot, for sure. Seventhly, he says, you know, if anyone could claim righteousness based upon law and legal observance, Paul says, I am it. I would have been one of the first ones to claim that kind of credential. 
So seven things that made him truly confident and proud of who he was, what he had attained, and etc. But it says in verse 7, But whatever was gains to me, now I consider them lost for the sake of Christ. What happened here? Damascus happened. He was en route to Damascus, going what? Going to persecute Christians. And he here has a vision, unforgettable, life-altering vision of Christ. And he encounters the risen Christ who says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And that becomes one of those turning points in his life from which he will never return. And that is the reason why he writes what he's doing here. He offers his autobiographical snapshot as a way of reminding these Roman citizens as well as the Jewish Christians that, you know what, our ultimate and only confidence should increasingly be that we belong to God through Jesus Christ. That what really matters is that, not where you belong in terms of school or workplace or clubs or friend group or what have you. Those things are of secondary tertiary importance, but ultimately of no importance at all. So neither Jewish lineage or law of Moses was anything, nor the Roman Empire with its glorious law, aqueducts, senate, etc., was anything ultimately. Both could be misused as a way of just buttressing our own sense of self-confidence apart from the gospel of God, gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have to ask this question, don't we? What was so surpassingly great about knowing Jesus? I mean, for real, what's so great? You might say, well, I've been a Christian for about 25, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, who knows? And it's good, but can I really say that everything else is a loss compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus? And that, I think, is an important question. It's an important question for me because I struggle with it, and I suspect it's an important question for you because you also struggle with that. Is it really that great? He says, for that knowledge, he has lost it all. He sold all that he had in order to gain this. Let's say you are told that, you know, buying this, whatever that is, will make you 50 times richer within a week, right? And somebody says, I can guarantee that. And somehow you start to believe that message and say, okay, this must be true. If I buy this, whatever that is, a stock or a car or merchandise, that you'll become 50 times richer. That everything else will pale into great insignificance that you will do it. Then the question is, would I do it? And how do I make that transaction? How do I come to the point of saying, okay, I believe this, let me do that. See, he says the kind of righteousness for Paul and for the Jews, the language of righteousness mattered a lot. And for us, the language of righteousness matters a lot. Justice, righteousness, that means right relationship, right standing before God. Paul is saying, I, I don't have the righteousness that comes from the law anymore. Because I come to realize that legal observances were helpful, but they're pointers to the real deal. They cannot ever be the real deals themselves. Because they're merely pointing to the giver of the law, namely God himself. What Paul was assiduously defending throughout his ministry was that the Jesus movement, which will soon be called Christianity, was not a novel invention from or deviation of Judaism. No, it was the fulfillment of all the promises that God had made to Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, Rachel, so on and so forth. You get the picture. In fact, this idea of boasting in, in God, in knowing God, 
as the ultimate confidence was already read and shot right the way through uh, the Old Testament. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, as it was read for us by Jonathan earlier. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom. Let not the strong boast of their strength. Let not the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight. And I get, I stop dead in the tracks, and I have to ask myself this question. Is this true of me? That let not the rich, let not the wise, let not the strong boast of their strength, riches, or wisdom, but am I really boasting in that I know God? That that's the beginning and the end of my boasting and confidence. These are some important words for us. Let's try to switch gears and think this way with me, okay? We talked about confidence. I want to talk a little bit about grammar. Grammar. Many metaphors about the church. One way of looking at it is think of, let's think of the church as a grammar school, a place where you learn your grammar. Now, how many of you have learned a new foreign language in the last 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years? Okay, you got it. All right, great. So we all study some foreign language. I, I don't know how long you studied it. Maybe it's a year and then you're done. I took Italian, intensive Italian with my friend just because he said, Lema, I want you to take this intensive Italian with me. I said, okay, I'll take a one-year thing. That was it. But I actually learned English as a 15-year-old for the first time. So I, my family came here at age 15, and I had to learn this new language. When you learn a new language, this is what happens. You become a lot more attentive to the grammar. You know what I mean? Because they're teaching it to you. I, I forgot about all the English grammar that I learned until last year when my son was in, a, in his school in seventh grade. He was learning English grammar, and he was showing me all this stuff. I was like, oh, I didn't know how to diagram sentences. I never learned that, and you know what I'm talking about, right? So learning this grammar is really fundamental to your acquisition of this new language. So what Paul is doing is he's teaching a new grammar to these Philippian Christians. He's saying, okay, if you really know what it means to be a Christian, that means more than anything else, you're going to put less and less confidence on you and on your accomplishments and on your whereabouts and who you know and where you've been. Those things matter a little bit, but decreasingly so. But the most important thing is that you're going to increasingly put more confidence and more confidence and further confidence in Jesus and Jesus alone. And that is the fundamental grammar of grace. And that's what Paul is um, really kind of going on here. Because in the church, Paul is saying, we learn a new language of praising God more and praising self a little less, thinking of others more, including God, and learning the beauty of self-forgetfulness. The beauty of self-forgetfulness. Just forget about you. What Paul is doing is teaching this new group of Christians that their true message and true identity is really found ultimately in Jesus. So when we become more and more forgetful of these things, we remember that which truly matters. Here I realize, dear friends, that it's perhaps not my place to teach you a cuss word while preaching, and it's certainly not in, certainly not in Koine Greek, the language of Paul's choice here. But you see where Paul says in verse 8 the word rubbish, okay? If you remember today's text, that's what it says, that, you know, I regard all of these things I've, for Jesus' sake, I lost all things. I consider them rubbish or garbage. That is called a euphemism. 
putting it nicely, putting a very nice spin to this word. I want to teach you one word today. Word for the day, right, is skubala. Can you say it with me? Skubala. S-K-U-B-U-L-A, skubala. In, in Greek, that means it starts with S, right, sigma? Well, it's also in English, it's S bleep bleep T. <laughs> Crap. Think about it. Paul says, all the things that I used to hold dear and regard so important in my life, could have been my membership here, could have been my degree from there, could have been my job there, could have been my pension. All of these things do matter. But as I come to see who Christ is and what he has done for me and what, who he is in me, I regard all of those things as skubala, as utter rubbish, if not crap. Let me concretize it for you. Many of us have dogs, yes? Our pets. And you walk your dogs, yes? And I, we, we got our little Baxter about a, a, 10 months ago, and I walk with Baxter, and it's one of, I mean, that's, that's the one creature who's always unfailing in saying hi to me. Every time I walk in the door, I know there's somebody who's going to say hi. I walk with Baxter, so do you with your dogs. When you walk your dog, you sometimes carry some kind of plastic bag, yes? And when your dog goes to do number two, what do you do after your dog goes to number two? You pick it up, yes? And I think this is what you do. You hold on to that poop for a while. You hold on to it as long as you can. Because you say, this is the poop from my favorite dog ever. This is my BFF, my canine creature, and I don't ever want to dispense with it. Not. Certainly not. You're thinking there, is this guy for real? Yes, I was kidding. Nobody does that. You don't do it, I don't do it. It would be crazy for us to hold on to dog's crap as long as we can. The thing we do is what? Get it chucked out as quickly as possible, right? You know what I mean? And this is what Paul is saying. The apostle Paul is saying your own self of righteousness, your, all the legal observances, all the things you've done that you think are so important, they're basically dog's crap. Nobody holds on to them, nor should we. But there's also a problem, because we're not always like that. Recently, I got to watch R.J. Palacio's novel turned into movie, Wonder. Right? It's a great, great book. I just started to read it. I watched the movie. It's a great film. Uh, it was uh, starring Julia Roberts and Owen Wilson. The main character's name is Augie uh, Pullman. How many of you have read the book or watched the movie? Okay, great. Highly, highly recommended. Maybe we should do a movie night with that. I don't know, at the church. But Augie Pullman was the guy who was fearfully and wonderfully made by God. Yet, in the eyes of so many people, he was deemed to be grotesque. Something's wrong with that guy. Look at the way he looks. And he was ridiculed and bullied for his looks. And the smear tactic of alleging that touching Augie will get you the plague, etc., etc. Throughout, it's about the story of kindness, story about identity, story about journey. Here's my favorite part from the book that I began to read. For Augie, he says, my favorite holiday is Halloween. It even beats Christmas. I get to dress up in a costume. I get to wear a mask. I get to go around like every other kid with a mask and nobody thinks I look weird. Nobody takes a second look. Nobody notices me. Nobody knows me. I wish every day it could be Halloween. We could all wear masks all the time. Then we could walk around and get to know each other before we got to see what we look like under the masks. Did you hear that? Then we could walk around and get to know each other before we got to see what we looked like under the masks. 
Students, you know, you ever feel that way? People who are not in school, do you ever feel that way? You know what I mean? I sure as heck do know what that means. Because of color, because of appearance, because of how you're shaped, because of height, obesity, weight, less weight, all of these things. So many of us, including me, starting with me, wish that all of that could be hidden. I wish people could just look at me as me. This is me. The covering that Jesus provides. What Augie desires so much, why he loved Halloween so much is because that one day he could run around wearing a mask. Nobody will say, what a grotesque, ugly-looking guy you are. One day he can say, you know what, I am free. The gospel gives us true freedom. Freedom in the Lord. And Jesus said, you know, when the Son of Man sets you free, you're free indeed. So do not let anything else, anything else, bind you up again, enslaving us. See, the beauty of the gospel is this. As a community, we learn the grammar of grace. We learn the grammar of grace that says, you know what? I don't care where I went to school or who I know. Those things don't matter. Who cares if you went to a, you know, 200-year-old school or 700-year-old school? You can always find some school that's older than you. You know what I mean? Like, okay, I went to a school that's like 300 years old, and somebody says, oh, yeah, my school is 900 years old. Well, then you're quashed. You see, all of those games we play will always make us ultimately losers. So the game we ought to play is a game that God so graciously gave to us in Jesus Christ. That is, stop playing games. Just come to me. The Apostle Paul says in closing in verses 10 and 11, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, as we will do in our Eucharist, in our Lord's Supper, that we, it's a participation as well as proclamation, as Pastor David often says. Yes, that's exactly right. We participate and proclaim the goodness of God through the suffering of Jesus Christ, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This truth of Christ's ultimate sufficiency is so rare, even in Christian circles, somebody said, and that somebody's Blaise Pascal in his pensée. He says, truth is so obscure in these times and falsehood so established that unless we love the truth, we cannot know it. So that means we've got to love the truth. Love the truth that Jesus is all that he says he is. That all the things that we are holding on so tightly as our confidence and righteousness, Jesus says, you know what, friend? That's scubala. Throw it away. That love that truth because we will really know it. What confidences do you have? Do I have? On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand, friends. Let's pray and come to Christ, who is our only and ultimate confidence in our life journey. Let's pray. Gracious God and glorious Lord, we thank you for you have existed as Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit from eternity past. And even now, you come and touch our hearts, feed our souls, and inform our minds, reminding us that we belong to you. That all the things that we may be holding so dearly even right this moment, remind us through your Spirit that they are nothing at all. Lord, continue to teach us your truth. Continue to beautify this community called Christ Prayers so that the beauty and the light of the gospel will not only go to West Africa, North India, or Tokyo, but here in Nashville, here in our own hearts, 
and much, much beyond as well. We love you for you have loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Amen.